This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Up next from Craigslist Foundation, learn about the benefits and responsibilities of 501c3 tax-exempt status. The IRS's Joe Kroll explains all about employment issues, filing requirements, and actions that could jeopardize the tax-exempt status of a charity organization. From the Conversations Network's Social Innovation Channel. Hi, this is Elena Connor Snibby. And I'm Eric Nee. We are your hosts on Social Innovation Conversations. Welcome to the free series of podcasts of Craigslist Foundation's nonprofit boot camps designed to help people help people. To learn more about Craigslist Foundation or the nonprofit boot camp conferences, visit www.craigslistfoundation.org. This series is funded by the Community Technology Foundation of California, which helps underserved communities secure social justice, access, and equality through the application of information and communications technologies. Registered members of the Conversations Network receive a wide variety of benefits. For free membership or to help support our efforts through your donations, visit conversationsnetwork.org. And now, here's our presentation from the Craigslist Foundation. My name is Joe Kroll. I'm with the IRS. I manage the group of employees that are in the Bay Area that do audits of nothing but tax-exempt organizations. A little history about the IRS. I think that would be a good place to start. And that history is kind of how it relates to compliance. Back in the 50s, the IRS decided they would approach their work by using audits as a compliance tool. And their idea was they would find someone that's doing something wrong, they would send an auditor out and absolutely throw the book at them, take no excuses for anything, then they would hope that this would get some press or some media attention of some sort, and everyone would be scared to death to do anything wrong as it relates to their taxes. Well. What they really found out is that system really isn't working so well. Most people would like to do it right, but the tax laws are so incredibly complicated, it's hard to do it right. So now, rather than using those audits as our primary compliance tool, what we're trying to do is get out in the community, we're trying to talk to people, we're trying to get to know the exempt organizations, we're trying to see what their concerns are, and we're putting on educational things like we're doing today where we talk about what some of the problems are we're seeing, hoping that we can get them corrected. So my goal for being here today, in the next hour and a half, I want to talk about some of the big issues, the big four probably issues that a charity can get into trouble with. and. I want to answer a lot of questions, and I want to hear your stories and where your problems are. My goal is that everyone in the room here will never, ever, ever have a need for an audit because you'll know how to do everything correctly. So that's kind of the goal for our session. The things I'm going to talk about, the four big things that could jeopardize your tax-exempt status. Before I talk about that, I'm going to give just a little bit of an overview, some beginning things to know about having an exempt organization. After I'm done with those four biggies, I've got some other things we can talk about. If time permits, we'll go through those. If not, we will not. I have a lot of stuff to present. You're not going to remember everything I've said. So there are some really main things to get. And the first thing to get, this is me. This is my phone number. Your question is going to come up later. I mean, you're thinking today we're going to get to the bottom of this. Something's going to come up two weeks from now or when your organization has a board meeting and you're going to have a board member that proposes this wild activity, that's going to be the time that you're going to need some answers to some really tough questions. And that's when you pick up the phone and give me a call. Probably the second most important thing is our webpage, irs.gov. If you go, there's a charity section. You click on the charities link, and it takes you to the exempt organization or the charity webpage. They have this big, long life cycle of a tax-exempt organization. If your organization is just starting out, you click on the beginning of this timeline, and it tells you things you need to know in the beginning. If, for instance, your organization has decided to discontinue operations and you're going to dissolve, click on the other end for your dissolution of your organization. Click in the middle. It has information that you need to know to continue your operations. So that's a neat place to start to get information. 
all of the basic information is there. So those are really two things to keep in mind. What I have, and I'm going to just send it around, the PowerPoint slides that I'm going to go through, I have a copy of those to pass out. They just kind of give a basic overview of everything we're going to be discussing. The meat, the nuts and bolts, going to the web page, you're going to get a lot more depth from what these slides are showing. When you have a really unusual question, that's where you pick up the phone and call me. A little bit about tax-exempt status. An exempt organization, they're kind of clearly defined. It's in a trust, an association, a corporation. It's not engaged in profit, and it's exempt from tax under 501. It's 501C that gives all of the different types of organizations that can be exempt from federal tax. And there's different categories. There's C3s, C4s, C5s, C6s. They go on and on. What I'm going to talk about today mainly relates to 501c3s, which are charitable organizations, schools, churches, foundations, that sort of thing. The list can go on and on and on. There are some benefits of being a 501c3. The one benefit I would like to point out, 501c3s, when you go to a donor and they make a donation to your charity, they get a tax deduction on their personal tax return. That happens for 501c3s. For all of the other Cs, C4, C5, C6, C7, right on down the line, they do not get that charitable deduction when they make that contribution. This is something unique to C3s. This is why most organizations try as hard as they can to get 501c3 status. It's much easier to raise funds because when you approach a donor, you can say this is a tax-deductible contribution. So that is the big benefit of C3 status. So for being a C3, it's a two-pronged test. You have to be organized and you have to be operated for a charitable purpose. So the organizational test, that means that you have to have a purpose that's stated uh, that's allowable, 501c3 charitable purpose. Uh, you have to have a disillusion clause that says when your organization ends, all of the assets in this C3, if you go out of business, we'll go to another 501c3. We don't just get to divide it up among the board. There can be only a small amount of activity that is not in furtherance of your exempt purpose. And under this organizational test, for IRS purposes, this is how your organization looks on paper, how it's organized. And perhaps you have already done it. You've applied for your 501c3 status from the IRS. They wanted to see copies of your articles and your bylaws, and you completed a Form 1023. It's just a huge application and got a ruling back that said you'll be recognized as a 501c3. They look at that organizational test really, really close to see how you're organized. If you haven't been through that yet, right after this, Sherry Evans is going to talk a little bit about deciding whether you should be a 501c3 or not and what you need to do. Now, I noticed a question back here first. Oh, that's a good question. What is insubstantial amount? Per the IRS, we hear this all the time, insubstantial amount, and we don't have a, we don't, there's just, there's just no bright line that as soon as you get over 12.3%, it's too much. It goes by the facts and circumstances of your organization. If you're going to be a 501c3, everything you do should pretty much be in furtherance of that exempt purpose. So if you're an orphanage and you help homeless children, Everything you do should be in furtherance of that homeless children thing. So if you start a fundraising program and it got kind of big, as long as it wasn't bigger than your orphanage, you'd be okay. And as long as you're spending all of the money from that on your orphanage, you're probably fine. I'll go into some more examples of that as we go through. Another question here. Where does the public go to see someone's organizing documents? Yes, they are public. We're going to go into some 990 public disclosure stuff and a lot of things. Let's hold that question until a little later. So, just out of curiosity, how many people in the room have not got their 501c3 status yet? They're just maybe organizing and they're doing that 1023? Oh, cool. This is good to know. This is very good to know. You complete a 1023 in order to get 501c3 status, and you send it to the IRS. We read it, and we come up with a ruling. You get a letter back that said you've been approved as a C3. So, how long does this process take? Well... When you send it in, you'll get a letter back that says you should have your application in 180 days. That doesn't always happen. From what I understand right now, it's taking about a year for the really tough applications to get their ruling letter. 
a little of the process. When you mail that in, it's going to actually go to someone that reads every page of it. And they're going to get to like the fourth page and they're going to have kind of a question about what your organization is going to do. So they're going to shoot a letter out to you. As soon as you get that letter, if you respond really quickly, that speeds the process up. So we've completed our application. We think our organization is really good. We've mailed it into the IRS and we're waiting on them to give us our official letter. Now in the meantime, what are we supposed to do? Well, yeah, you can go ahead and operate as if you're going to be approved and as if you're going to be a 501c3. Yep, people can have the tax write-offs. So yes, this is just a really good point that was brought up. In going through the application process, it's not going to be easy. There are going to be things you'll need to do with the state. There are going to be things you need to do with the feds. We're going to have to put that application all together for the feds. The state may require a separate application. The state has some free seminars for tax-exempt organizations. You might check this blue sheet of paper that was in your bag when you registered. That gives information for state because you are going to have to run your articles through them. It's going to be a big process. Was there a question over here? Oh, very good. Yes. The question is, do we have to be a corporation or can we be a trust? Yes, you can be a corporation, you can be a trust, or you can just be an association, just so you have some sort of a formal legal identity. To reiterate it one more time, we're a 501c3 and we have, in good faith, we think we're a great c3. We've sent our application in, it's taken the IRS forever to get that back to us, and now we have people that are ready to give us donations. It's perfectly fine to tell them, yes, you can take a tax deduction for it, our application is pending. And that's going to be fine. Some organizations are going to want a copy of that letter. You can call the IRS. Now, this is just a rumor I heard. <laughs> if you have a grant that's pending, you've applied for a grant from a foundation somewhere, and they said, if we do not get a copy of your determination letter in 60 days, you're not going to be eligible for the grant. You can call the IRS and say, can you expedite my application? I've got a pending grant request that's going to fall apart if I don't get something. You know, every IRS letter has a form number on it, but as soon as that's sent in, you get a letter back that says you should have a ruling, and then it gives 120 days or 180 days. Some organizations are really lucky, and it comes back really quick. What's going to happen? You fill that application out. It goes in, and it first goes through clerical screening. Clerical screening makes sure that every attachment is there. If you're being represented by an attorney, that the power of attorney document is correct, and that everything that should be signed is signed, and that the user fee is included. If you fail clerical screening, they mail it back to you and say you forgot a form. Then it goes to a technical screening area. If your organization is incredibly straightforward, you're going to do something and your budget is really clear, and we can see from that application everything that you're going to do. We take about 20% of the applications and you flip through them like you're flipping through a magazine at the bookstore. We say, this one looks pretty good, approve it. What happened with you is that person was flipping through that document and they got to the back and they said, you know, this application is absolutely perfect, but you know that one page is missing. Let's call them and have them fax that in. So that what had happened with you is they called and said, you know, if you can get me one thing today, I can get you approved. So once it's been approved by the technician, it goes to a quality review process where they're selected at random for a second level review. And then eventually the letter gets mailed out. So let me back up here a minute. You've made it through clerical review. You've made it through technical review. <laughs> If during that technical review, they're unclear about your budget, it looks like the president of your board is going to get a very substantial salary and they don't understand why he's going to get all this money. So then it gets assigned to an agent who's going to actually send you a big long letter that asks why the president's going to get a million dollar a year salary and what his job description is going to be and, and what his qualifications are and if you've done a compensation study and they'll fire that letter out to you. The process, why they're taking so long, that period from leaving that technical screening group to get assigned to an agent that can actually work it, it just sits in queue until there's someone that can take it. So it could take up to a year for them then to send you that letter out with that simple question, and you're going to probably call back and say, that was a typo, we transposed a number, he gets $100 a year. <laughs> and they'll go, oh, well, now it all makes sense, and we'll approve you. A question back here. So what it sounds like we have right here, we have a 501c3 organization that's set up as a foundation. And that's the very next slide I wanted to talk about. We have public charities and we have private foundations. Private foundations are kind of unique. They're both 501c3s, but a private foundation is when grandma dies, she has $100 million in the bank, she decides she'd like to start a charity, so her will says that 
uh, $75 million is going to go into a charity. They're going to take their earnings off of that money every year and make gifts to different people. So we have this wonderful charity that's giving out a lot of money. Well, uh, when Grandma dies, she gives her grandkids are going to be the board of directors. And this money is going to be very tightly controlled, and they're just going to dole it out every year. That's a private foundation. That's this side. We have public charity. Public charities are a little different. They're supported by the public in general. And that's where we come up with a cause. We send out a fundraising letter. People send money into us. We have a publicly supported charity. So what it sounds like right now is you're going to have two 501c3s. You've already got a private foundation that makes grants, a family foundation. And you're going to now start a second organization that's a medical charity of some sort. So this is a question. We're a private foundation. We don't want to be a private foundation anymore. We want to be a public charity. It kind of goes by where you get your support. So all private foundations can ask the general public for support. And it's just a matter of if most of the money came from one person, you're going to be a private foundation. The cleanest way is to have a public charity that's a public charity from the very beginning to the end. Okay, let's roll on, because I want to really go into what's going to jeopardize our status. The beauty of a lot of the questions that are coming up now, if you're going to be in the next presentation with Sherry Evans, she's going to talk a little bit about this application process and about should we start another charity, should we use the one we have, that sort of thing. So deal directly with her. She is from a law firm that does nothing but deal with charities. Every client she has is a charity of some sort. So she is going to be the person to direct these questions to one-on-one -on -one if she doesn't cover it in her presentation. And I'm going to hold off on questions just a little bit till we get into the important part that I wanted to talk about. And that would be four things that I want to cover that could get you into trouble. And these are the four. Uh, the first one we kind of call inurement. The other one is lobbying. A really big one right now is political. And then we have this unrelated business income stuff. And the first one I want to start with is inurement. It's kind of a funky term. When you start a 501c3 organization, you have that charitable purpose. We sort of think that everything, all your activities, everything you do should be in furtherance of that charitable purpose. When you start a 501c3 with a different idea, like perhaps I don't have a job, so I decided I'll start a 501c3 because I could pay myself a really great salary. And I could just go out in the community and raise a lot of money, and that money that comes in will be used so that I can get a salary. Well, our purpose isn't, you know, that real wonderful charitable purpose. Our purpose in starting the organization is trying to get rich ourselves. So that would be considered inurement whenever we take a C3 and we set it up just so it'll funnel money to us. This inurement thing can come looking very different. Sometimes your 501c3 organization, the president of your board will own a company or have a corporation that provides some sort of services, and he may ask that the C3 only purchase from his related company. And perhaps his company charges more than everybody else does. Now we have a situation of inurement. So inurement is bad. Anyone that controls the organization shouldn't be profiting from the organization unduly. So this is a good question. We have an arts organization, and some of the board members are getting some benefits because they're actually working in a couple of the productions. So now we have a private benefit idea. And private benefit can happen if it's just incidental. The organization really wasn't set up because a particular actor could never get a job. So he started his own arts company, and now he's going to star in everything. No. Someone is getting paid to play the violin in the orchestra, and they're also on the board. So on the inurement thing, the president of the board, we may funnel business to his wife. And now we've got the same big problem because he didn't become president of the board because he really was passionate about his cause. He came because he needed to get some money into his family some way. The next one I want to talk about is lobbying. This is an attempt to influence legislation. It's all right if this happens once in a while. If there's a piece of legislation that really, really relates to your organization, you help homeless children, and there's maybe a law that's going to pass that would help get some of these kids off the street, lobbying just a little bit for that would be okay because it's tied to your exempt purpose. There's this second thing which we call political activity, which is completely different from lobbying. Political activity 
involves a candidate for public office. Our 501c3 cannot in any way get involved in a candidate's election to public office. This is an absolute prohibition. As soon as you've done this, we come out and take away your 501c3 status. This is a really, really big deal. You may have seen some of the things come up in the newspaper about some rather big organizations that are getting audited. What's happening right now, there's kind of an audit program, and it's going to be really big during this November election cycle, where when we hear of an organization that's involved in a political campaign, the case comes to my office, and I have like 20 days to get it assigned to an auditor. And within 24 hours of us receiving the case, you get a form letter that explains that you know, there's a prohibition on endorsing a candidate for public office. And it just basically says, you know, stop endorsing this and wait quietly because we'll be out to audit you in just a few days. <laughs> What's happening here is, for example, if you have a church and you bring a candidate in to speak and you say, hey, we're endorsing this candidate in the next election, there's always one member in the room that's for the other guy. And as soon as that person leaves this meeting of this C3, they send our office a fax. And they call their campaign headquarters. And everybody on the campaign thing calls our office. They call their congressman in DC. So we get this big stack of paper like you've done something really, really bad. And included in that is the brochure for this particular event where it does say that you endorse this candidate for public office. What happens is our hands are tied. We have to kind of come out and revoke your tax-exempt status. So especially as elections get really, really heated up, the 501c3 should not be involved in endorsing a candidate for public office. Some things that can get you into trouble, they're maybe not going to get your tax-exempt status completely revoked, but there's something you don't want to have happen. And that would be every one of your employees wears a button that says elect whoever while they're on the job. Now people come into your charity's place of business. They see everybody with these buttons on. Again, they're going to call our office and say it's nothing but a campaign center there. And they're, they're endorsing this candidate for public office. That looks bad. Another thing is email. Your employees all have email. Your email address probably includes your organization's web page. So now when that mail clerk you have that delivers the mail and they also have an email account sends an email to their cousin in Ohio about who they should vote for on the next campaign, when you print out that email, it looks like that email came from your organization that you're endorsing a candidate and that you're uh, using your email system to further this candidate's campaign. And that again falls into the absolute prohibition. Now, if someone was to come out and do an audit, and you're able to substantiate that this is an isolated incident, and you had one employee and was doing this, and you don't have a big email program where you're spamming millions of people about who to vote for, you're probably not going to lose your 501c3 status. But at the same time, what I would recommend is talking to your employees, making them well aware that doing an activity like this is not right and is not appropriate for a 501c3. A question way back here. That's a good question, because we have these referenda and these initiatives. Are they included? What's the difference between this political activity and the lobbying activity? The political, any time it involves a person, city council, a person for the school board, a person for any of these campaigns, when we endorse a candidate for an election, we have got political activity. It's absolutely prohibited. This prior screen about lobbying, we can talk about these initiatives. If it's tied to our 501c3 purpose, and it's not all we're doing. It's just a small part of what we're doing. If you're going to do lobbying, we can make this election. We can file this form 5768. And the question is, should we file that 5768? Is the IRS going to be mad at us? Or are we going to be targeted? Is there going to be some big audit program that goes after you there? No. It's perfectly fine to do that. There are some dollar limits. And they're kind of explained on the form. You follow those carefully. Uh, when your return is filed at the service center, the computer automatically makes sure you haven't overspent. So complete that section of your return very carefully. There's a section for if you've made the election. This political activity, our organization is, is a, a media group, and we're going to go talk to every candidate that's running in this one particular election. We're going to ask each candidate the exact same questions. Have we been involved in political activity? 
the second part of that question is, what about this uh, women's organization that runs all the presidential debates? Aren't they a 501c3? How can they get involved in running all of these big debates and not be political activity? We are not political activity if we invite every candidate. We do not tailor our questions so that one candidate will look good and the other will look bad. If it's just a nonpartisan, it's something meant to educate voters about how the candidates' views are on particular issues, that's absolutely fine. If you do a voter guide and you just publish it and say, you know, here's all of the candidates listed and here's how they are in every issue, that's perfectly acceptable. Some organizations then have taken this a step farther and they have five or six issues that they're really passionate about and they know every one of their members are passionate about these issues. So they did a voter guide that listed the candidates and only these particular issues and how the organization stood on these issues. Well, that wasn't exactly a nonpartisan voter education guide. This was a way of indirectly endorsing some candidates because we limited the number of issues and we only covered things on them. So we've gone out to these candidates and some have not responded back. That's going to be fine if that's exactly what's happened. If the candidates perceive your publication is very slanted towards the right or the left, and you can see that if you're slanted toward the left, none of the right-wing people are responding. Well, now when you look at that and just the whole situation to see exactly what's happening, we can see that candidates aren't responding because you're endorsing particular candidates, and if they do respond, they'll look bad. That's a different situation. But some candidates that just don't, that's fine. A question here? Yep. So 501c6s can lobby. A lot of the things I'm talking about here relate to 501c3s. And c3s are the ones that have the big prohibition on political activity. Everybody else can get involved in that, and it's not this absolute prohibition. This will be a big one. And I hope through this election cycle, we're going to see less of those full-page ads put out by 501c3 organizations endorsing a candidate for public office. The next one I want to cover is unrelated business income, but I'll take a question before I go on. This is a really good question. We're a 501c3 organization, and we don't want to do any of these prohibited political activity. We don't want to get into this lobbying thing. But we know the rules are different for every 501c category. Cs are very, very strict. So what we're going to do is we're going to start a 501c4. These are social welfare organizations. They just do good things for the community. They also can get away with a little bit more. We frequently have these organizations that are related. So if you're going to apply for tax-exempt status, sending those two applications in together so that we can see a clear picture of what's happening uh, is probably the best way to do it. One thing to keep in mind when you have a 501c3 that's associated with any other organization, any of the other C organizations, the C3 raises money by people writing a tax-deductible contribution check. That money belongs to the public at large and is meant to go 100% for a charitable purpose. Once you start your C4, the C3 can't just send a little money over to the C4 because the C3 money needs to stay for a C3 purpose. So that's a key one there. The next one I want to talk about is unrelated business income. This is perfectly fine. You can have unrelated business income. It, it isn't a bad thing for your organization to have. If all your organization does is raise money that's unrelated to your exempt purpose and you never have any charitable activities, we do have a problem there. But having unrelated business income is fine. Uh, 501c3s, a lot of them are fortunate. They can just go out to donors and say, would you donate to us? And they write tax-deductible checks. That's a great system. Other times, you have to have a fundraising activity, something to do to make money. Sometimes those fall into unrelated business income. A little of the background here. Let's assume that our 501c3 charity goes out and purchases a McDonald's franchise and puts it on the corner. This would be a great way for our organization to make money. There's an interesting thing. Our McDonald's franchise on this side of the street compared to the McDonald's franchise on the other side of the street, we'll be able to sell our hamburgers a lot cheaper. And the reason we can is we don't have that one expense item that the one across the street has. The taxes. We do not have to pay taxes. So... Our hamburgers will sell cheaper. We'll have an unfair competitive advantage in the marketplace. In order to level the playing field, 
Congress put in this unrelated business income tax thing. When we're involved in some sort of an activity that's unrelated to our exempt purpose, there's going to be a chance we're going to have to pay tax on it. When we pay tax on it, it's usually at the standard corporate rate. For every unrelated business income activity, there's usually a way to take this activity and not have it be an unrelated business income activity anymore. We can make it where it's not going to be taxable. Some people's uh, organization has a website where they sell goods and they don't pay tax on it. This is really common. What I want to go through are what unrelated business income is, and then I want to go through some of the tricks of the trade where we can turn it in where it's not going to be taxable. First of all, for it to be unrelated business income, there's a three-pronged test. We have to meet all three of these. If we do not meet all three, we, know we, we don't have unrelated business income. The three things are it has to be a trader business. Our McDonald's franchise is certainly a trader business because we're in the business of selling hamburgers. Regularly carried on. That McDonald's franchise is open 365 days of the year, so it's certainly regularly carried on. And not substantially related to the organization's exempt purpose. Well, if we're a charity that helps homeless youth, there's no way that selling hamburgers and helping youth, there's no relationship there. Now, one thing to keep in mind, every dime we make on our project goes back in to funnel our C3 and to help these kids. That doesn't matter. There's nothing about where the money is spent. It's 100% where the money is earned. So the fact that we're using the proceeds of this McDonald's franchise to get teenagers off the streets doesn't really make a difference. It's the fact that we earned it in something that's a trader business that's regularly carried on and that is not substantially related to our exempt purpose. What does this include as far as our website and accepting that advertising? One of the number one biggest categories we have for unrelated business income is advertising income. Charities are getting into this little advertising agency business. How this happens, the one we see most often, your organization mails a newsletter out every month. And we've kind of scratched our head and we said the postage is killing us, the printing is killing us. This is really, really expensive. What are we going to do? So someone says, why don't we let our members put little ads into our newsletter and that will help defray the cost of the postage. Well, what we have done is now we've gone into the advertising business and we're selling ads in our newsletter. That is unrelated business income. We're going to have to pay tax on those proceeds. The next thing, our website. We kind of decided, whoops, we're running this website and it's kind of expensive for the hosting and the design. But we're going to get into this thing. If we put a link to someone else's website on here, we're going to get paid a little bit of money. Well. Now we've kind of got into that advertising business again, and we have some unrelated business income. Unrelated business income is different than that political activity we just talked about. If you have some, it's okay. You just file a Form 990-T, and you pay the tax on this money, and it's no big deal. On this three-part test, I'll take questions in just a minute. I want to talk about a few things that I think are going to answer a lot of these questions. Three-part test, we have to meet all three. A regularly carried on. This one comes up a lot. Once a year, we have that big fundraising gala, and we have a ballroom in the hotel, and they have the big banquet, they have the keynote speaker, there's dancing. We charge everyone $350, and they all wear black ties, and they come to our event, and it's very, very successful. Well, technically, we're running a restaurant, and a restaurant would be a trader business, and we've got this entertainment thing going. So we do fall into the trader business thing, and we help homeless teens, so having this huge party that everybody wears tuxedos to and getting teenagers off the street, there's no connection there. But when you get to regularly carried on, this event happens only once a year. So this fundraising activity is not unrelated business income. In order to be unrelated business income, you have to meet all three, and we have not met the regularly carried on. To carry that one step further, not substantially related to our organization's exempt purpose, we help homeless teenagers. We have a McDonald's franchise on the corner, and we have gone to these homeless kids and we said we need to get you off the street we're going to have to get you jobs you're going to need to earn money you have no work experience you have no skills to meet and deal with the public which can be really tough so we're going to turn our McDonald's franchise into a training ground and these homeless teens are going to work here for six months and then we're going to shepherd them out into a job somewhere else but they're going to get on the job training with meet and deal skills with how to deal with people if you buy ice cream in the hate the Ben and Jerry's that is owned by a 501c3. 
it's not unrelated business income because it's related to their exempt purpose. They're taking kids off the street in the hate and they're giving them job training and they're teaching them skills where they can earn a living for themselves. So you have to meet all three. Any way we can find not to meet one of those three, we no longer have unrelated business income. Regularly carried on. What is that regularly carried on? We have our annual fundraising gala dinner every year. It only happens once a year, but it happens every year. That's not necessarily regularly carried on. But if we go to the state fair, and every year we run the concessions at the state fair, the state fair is 10 days, and we're there for all 10 days of every year, that might be considered regularly carried on. If we do a newsletter that comes out every month that's regularly carried on, if we put out a phone book, traditionally phone books are only printed once a year. So that would be a once a year activity that if we do every year is going to pretty much seem like regularly carried on. So regularly carried on can be really different. So here's what we have. We're a 501c3 and we're a horticulture organization of some sort and we've got this incredibly beautiful garden. And we have gone to this one for-profit company and they say if you will advertise our organization in your garden, it's going to be a big sign that says Joe's Muffler Shop. Uh, $10 discounts on mufflers on Wednesdays. Is that unrelated business income? Well, trader business, yeah, that's kind of an advertising. That billboard thing is big business. Is it regularly carried on? Yeah, that, that's going to be up there all year long. Is it related to our, our organization's exempt purpose? I don't know about mufflers and gardening. It's just, so I think we're going to have unrelated business income. There's a neat thing. Once we find out we have unrelated business income, we can go to the second level test. Because when we get to the second level, there's ways to take unrelated business income and not have it be taxable. Here are some examples before I go into our little tricks to get out of unrelated business income. Let's go through some examples of stuff. And the first one we talked about was advertising. And that advertising we see a lot as far as the web page goes and a lot the monthly newsletter that you mail out. A 10-page newsletter and the very last page is all advertising. Well, all of the income we generate from selling those ads is unrelated business income, but all of the expenses associated with putting that last page, those ads, getting that done, we get to deduct that against that income. So when you take the printing fees, a 10-page newsletter and the very back page is 100% advertising, we can take 10% of the printing fee and deduct it against that advertising income. We can take 10% of the postage. We mailed it out. We get to allocate all of the costs that are associated with putting together the newsletter and the costs that specifically address this advertising income. You have a full-time editor that does nothing but the newsletter and sells the ads and does all of this stuff. 10% of that person's salary gets to be deducted against that income. All of those expenses tied to producing that advertising income you get to deduct. So it lowers it a little. It's based on if I had two pages out of 10 pages, it would be 20%. It's allocated based on how much of the newsletter was unrelated business income and how much of it was related to our exempt purpose. A question here? So you're starting a 501c3, and right now where we're getting all of our funding is anytime it needs money, I just write a check to my C3 to pay for whatever it needs. Well, it's not going to be unrelated business income because I'm just making a donation to the organization. But if we get back to like that second or third slide I talked about where we had private foundations supported just by one person or just a few people and we have public charity that has broad-based support from the entire community, when one person is paying all of the funding and putting it all together, you could slip into private foundation status. So this grant stuff is really interesting. When you get to that three-pronged test for unrelated business income, the last one is not related to our exempt purpose. When we get these grants, we've usually made an application to say, we're going to help these homeless kids, and if you give us a $100,000 grant, we're going to do X, Y, and Z to help the kids. So it's related to our exempt purpose. It's not going to be unrelated business income. Now, when we go to that other test that we were talking about up here of are we a private foundation or a public charity, when we get those grant proceeds, they're usually from another 501c3, and that's kind of considered public money. So we don't have to worry there. Churches are 501c3s. So real interesting, churches are frequently organized as 501c3s. They're not required that they are, but a lot of them elect to be organized as a 501c3. 
And uh, a church is never required to file the annual information return, the 990. But churches can have unrelated business income, just like any other 501c3. We see this quite often. The church is in the downtown area. And they have a huge parking lot, and they need every bit of that parking lot on Sunday morning. Well, now, Monday through Friday, 8 to 5, no one parks there. So frequently what a church will do is they'll let people in the community park in their parking lot for a monthly fee, and now we have unrelated business income because we're running a parking company. Yeah, they have, they have to pay taxes. The church has to pay taxes on unrelated business income. And they have to, yes. I thought that was an example on here. Maybe that's a good example to take right now, and that would be rental. We're a 501c3 and we have a building. Perhaps a church has a big church building and we rent it out to people. Rental income is a really unique one. If we rent something out that has no debt on it, it's not unrelated business income. If we have a piece of property that has debt on it, debt financed rental income, there is unrelated business income on that. It's kind of a unique situation. A theater company, and we're renting it out for someone else to do a play. This is a really, really good one. Do we have unrelated business income or do we not? Well, first of all, is it a trader business? Well, yeah, we are renting out a space, so that's kind of a business. There are businesses that do that. Is it regularly carried on? Well, yeah, we've decided that we put no productions on on Tuesday evenings, and we've rented it to them for every Tuesday evening. Now, is it not substantially related to our, our organization's exempt purpose? We're a 501c3 theater company, and we have rented out our theater for other organizations to put on performances. So I think that's going to be tied in very, very tightly with our exempt purpose. We're not going to have a bit of problem there. The same with renting out the church hall. If we've rented it to someone who's, and they're going to use it for a purpose that's really, really near and dear to our organization's exempt purpose, we're not going to fall under unrelated business income because this third prong of the test will not be met. A question way back here. This is a really good, it's a really good thing. We're a 501c3 organization. We're not sure where we're going to get our funding. Our president of our board has also written a book. It's a really good book. When are we going to have unrelated business income? When is this okay? When is it not okay? Some things to watch out for in this situation. If I write a really good book and I'm having trouble selling it, I might decide to start a really cool charity, and then everyone will go visit the charity's webpage, but when they get there, they'll really see a giant thing about my book. <laughs> Voila, my book sales are going to go through the sky. This is going to be the smartest thing I've ever done. But my charity wasn't really started with a real compassionate, charitable purpose. The purpose of my charity was to get some people to buy my book. So there we have inurement. That's a big problem. The second thing that can happen I can go to work for a charity, and the first assignment they give me is they say, Joe, glad you're working here. We'd like you to write a book. So I sit down at my desk and I write a book. Now, at the end of this writing process, I go in and I copyright this book as if I'm the copyright holder. Well, technically, my charity paid my salary and assigned me this task of writing the book. The charity holds the copyright to the book. So when we start selling the book, the royalty proceeds go to my charity because they're the one that sort of put this whole idea together. So the ownership of the, the rights to the book can sometimes be in question. Now, if I did write a book and the royalty is held by my charity and we're selling this book on our web page, is it going to be unrelated business income? I'm thinking not, because if I wrote a book for a charity, I'm imagining it's educating people on the problems with homeless youth in our city or something, and it's going to be tied to our exempt purpose, and it's not going to be unrelated business income. If I wrote a, you know, some sort of just an, you know, an enjoyable book, fiction book like that, and we help homeless people, but we're selling this fiction book to make money, now we may have unrelated business income. Everybody has an idea, and they start a 501c3, and I can pretty much guarantee everybody in the room that when you actually get going, it's going to look just a little bit different from how you thought it would look. So here's the example here. We thought we'd go out and we would educate kids. But when we got these big educational programs going, we realized that none of the kids have eaten and half of them live on the streets. So we decide there's no way they're going to learn anything until we get them fed and we get them off the streets. So our organization's exempt purpose has shifted a little bit. That's perfectly all right as long as we keep it a 501c3 
purpose. And as long as we have a charitable purpose. You want to put the IRS on notice, though, about these changes. Sending a letter describing the changes to the same address you sent the 1023 is a good idea. Attaching an explanation of these changes and what's happened to your annual 990 information return is another good idea to keep the IRS on notice. Changes in funding, probably not as important because we're going to know a lot about your funding by how the 990 looks and if you're filing unrelated business income. The purpose is the big thing and the organizational structure of your organization. So I want to go into this and then I'm going to answer some more questions because I think this is kind of the nuts and bolts of the unrelated business income thing. You may have an activity you found out that it is absolutely unrelated business income like this McDonald's franchise and we're going to need to do something so we don't have to pay tax on this money. There are some things we can do. The first exception, which is probably the biggest and the most popular, when we have an unrelated business income activity, if it is run 100% by volunteers, it's no longer a taxable activity. So that McDonald's franchise, if we went out to our membership and said every member needs to sign up for two shifts and we're going to run this restaurant 100% with volunteer labor, we no longer have unrelated business income because we have this volunteer exception. This applies to those candy sales where kids come to your door to sell candy. That's not unrelated business income because it's being conducted by volunteers. The PTAs that are selling t-shirts, this is all stuff that's done by volunteers. It's not going to be taxable. There's this next one that talks about convenience. That relates to the lunchroom in the hospital. They're running a restaurant, but that's really not going to be unrelated business income because it's there for the convenience of the doctors and for the people visiting patients in the hospital. So it's not unrelated business income, even though it's a restaurant. Sell a donated merchandise. Someone donates their art collection to you and you sell it. We don't have unrelated business income. Distribution of low-cost articles. Every person that makes a donation to my charity this month of $1,000 gets the coffee mug. I'm not selling coffee mugs for $1,000. That's not unrelated business income. Uh, if a C3 runs a trade show, that's not unrelated business income. Sponsorship is another unique situation that's not considered unrelated business income. This would be where we have the charitable golf tournament and someone steps in and says we'd like to sponsor the entire event and as part of that sponsorship we're just going to hook their name to our event. It's going to be the Joe's Muffler Shop Golf Classic. That is sponsorship. That's not advertising income. It's only using my name with the name of your event. Kind of a unique situation there. Uh, sale of donated merchandise. This is common. We see thrift shop. This is really common. The thrift shop, you donate old clothes. The thrift shop sells them. That's not unrelated business income. The car sales, the donated car thing, that's happening a lot. And with that donated car comes donated boats. And then eventually someone donates their plane. So. <laughs> What probably happened for your organization is that's going to be perfectly fine. It's not unrelated business income. There are some little tricks you'll need to do because you're going to probably be selling that plane the day you get it. So there'll be some little bit of reporting stuff you'll want to do about that plane just because it's a little more expensive. But definitely accept the donation and then get on the phone the next day and call the plane broker. <laughs> and tell them you need to unload an airplane rather quick. So for the sponsorship, they can pretty much sponsor anything. But the key for sponsorship is we only tack their name onto the thing. So it goes real well with events. You could have the mobile web page, but it's going to get confusing with your organization. And the other thing with sponsorship, we don't get to put their hours of operation. We don't get to have them control any of the content of what's going to go into this advertisement. It's basically just their name. So this is real interesting, sponsorship. It was the mobile cotton bowl in Texas where the IRS came in and said this is advertising. Congress then passed a law that said sponsorship would not be unrelated business income. And they defined it very, very narrow. It's just when you have something and you hook that name onto it. On our situation today where we have lots of names on our bag and stuff like that, the common one is the opera. You go to the opera and on one page you'll see the medallion level contributors and it's everybody that's contributed $10,000 and we just list their name. That's an acknowledgement. 
Uh, we're just acknowledging them as contributors. And we're not advertising. They have no control over the content. So that's a little bit of a different situation. So we put out a brochure, and someone else is going to put their logo on it. That's not a problem. And it's going to be, to be sponsorship, it has to be that whatever it is we're putting out, they're sponsoring, and we're hooking their name to what's happening. And with that, you can sometimes include a logo. So there are going to be ways to structure this so that it's sponsorship. If we put out a document that has, like a web page that has a hot link to their website, we've now crossed that line, and we no longer are just in this very limited definition of sponsorship. We're feeding internet traffic to their website, a different situation. A question way in the back. So a distribution of low-cost articles, and that would be you make a contribution and you get something back. This is indexed to inflation. I think it's somewhere around $8.20 is what the item can cost you that you distribute. Uh, what's interesting, I talked a little bit earlier about rental property, and if you have debt-financed rental property, it's taxable, but if there's no debt on it, it's non-taxable. Well, that only applies to the real property. Anytime we do personal property, that part is taxable. So if we rent out a building and we say you get the building and we're including all this personal property with it, we've kind of tainted that contract a little bit. And part of it's going to be taxable and part of it's not going to be taxable and it's going to be real complicated to figure out what part is what. So try to keep all of that kind of stuff separate. So uh, how much unrelated business income can we have? We have been selling donated merchandise. Our thrift shop is making us a boatload of money. Is this a bad thing? Not necessarily. We don't want the unrelated business income activity to take us over. An example I might give is back to that McDonald's <coughs> franchise. Let's assume we're really good at operating that franchise and we're making a boatload of money. And helping these homeless kids is just dancing on our last nerve. <laughs> we're tired of this. They don't take baths before they come to visit us. It's just so that activity drops off and drops off. Our unrelated business income activity, we just keep throwing things into that, and it just keeps flourishing. Well, now we got a problem because we're supposed to be exclusively charitable. Everything we do is in furtherance of our charitable purpose. And in reality, we have an unrelated business income activity, and we have a giant bank account, and there's no exempt activity happening. That's whenever we get into a bad thing. There are a lot of organizations out there that have a really good unrelated business income activity, and their organization is supported 100% by that activity. And they only have a small amount of donations. And that's perfectly fine because they have a good activity and it's flourishing. And they're doing a lot of great things in fulfilling their 501c3 purpose. And they're still a public charity, exactly right. So we got two prongs to this test. And the first thing we're talking about, we have a, an organization that puts on classes and we get tuition because everyone that signs up for our class has to write us a check for that class. The first thing I want to talk about, do we have unrelated business income? We go to that three-prong test, trader business, yeah, uh, putting on these seminars is a trader business, regularly carried on, yeah, we do it all year long. But related to our exempt purpose, our 501c3 was organized to put on these unique classes for this special population. We're an educational organization. When we get that check, we have program service revenue. So not unrelated business income. This is just they're funding this program and they're attending it. Now, we had this question up here a little bit earlier. I write a check to a 501c3. If it's a pure donation, I get a tax deduction for it. But if I'm writing a check to a 501c3 and I'm getting something in return, now I'm not getting a tax deduction. I'm not making a donation. I'm purchasing a service. I purchased a class. Donations are when I give something, getting nothing in return. So if I was to print up some really cool t-shirts and say rather than sell them for $10, I say anybody that donates $10 gets a t-shirt. Well, technically, the fair market value of that t-shirt is about $10. So when they write that check, they're getting something in return. They don't get a tax deduction for that contribution they made because they get something back in return. The donation, the tax deduction comes when I just write a check out of the goodness of my heart and give it to you, getting nothing in return. There's a third category that I didn't talk about, and that is, <laughs> remember me talking about that once a year fundraising gala and you write a check for $350? When you have these events or you make these contributions and you get something in return for them, we advise the donor that you received dinner, dancing, and all this stuff, and its fair market value was $75.
and you uh, wrote a check for $375 to attend the event. So $300 is a tax-deductible contribution. $75 is not taxable because that is the fair market value of what you received in exchange. If everybody that contributes you know, $1,000 gets a $100 sweater, you would say $900 of this contribution is tax deductible and 100 relates to something you got back in return. If you what? Oh, adoption fee. So I come into the SPCA, SPCAs are 501c3s, and I adopt a pet, I'm required to pay an adoption fee. So what happens there, that's not tax deductible, it's just a fee associated with me adopting a pet. So that's non-tax deductible, it's just a requirement of the pet. And what I have found, most people when it gets to the end of the year, it's little things like that they forget anyway. So that distribution of low-cost articles was that $8.20 thing you get in return. Was there a question here that I've, over, I've passed? This is real interesting here. We have a 501c3 that puts on an educational event, and we have one person that signed up for the event, and they don't have the money to pay. So their best friend is going to write a check to the organization that's going to pay their fee. Well, technically, that's not a contribution to the organization because there was a prearrangement where we got something back in return. So that friend got to send his best friend to this retreat. So there was a, something in return, zero tax deductible. Go ahead. So we have, a, we have an animal organization, and they've been donating a lot of things to us, like dog food and dog blankets and other just things, and we don't have a use for them, and we've been selling them. So sell of donated merchandise, we don't have to worry about unrelated business income. Uh, how about way in the back? So we are a film organization, and we have all of this film equipment, and in order to make money, we're renting our film equipment to McDonald's and their filming advertisements. And now, uh, when you watch TV, you see McDonald's advertisements that were made with our equipment. That's not necessarily tied into our exempt purpose. If we're a film organization that does a particular special kind of film, and there's another charity in the area that does that exact same kind of film, and they want to use our equipment some, when we get that lease fee from them, that's certainly not unrelated business income. We're furthering our exempt purpose by making people aware of this unique film we have going. So there are some things that are already excluded from unrelated business income. Interest and dividends, royalty income, the rental income we talked about, it's very unique. Debt finance rental income can be unrelated business income. Anytime we sell property, we sell a stock in our stock portfolio, we have all of these gains. Those gains are never unrelated business income. I also talked about this earlier. For unrelated business income, we get to deduct all of the expenses that were associated with producing that income. In addition, a net operating loss, we get to carry that forward. What I have found almost with every newsletter where they sell ads on that last page, they never sell those ads for enough money. And they're losing money every year. <laughs> you get to carry those losses forward, and finally when you start charging more money for those ads, you get to offset it with those losses from previous years. Everybody gets a $1,000 specific deduction. There's some things on charitable gaming, and I'm not going to go into these in detail. Uh, if you raise money with gaming activities, it's a really good way to raise money. You can raise a lot of money. There is a lot of red tape that's attached to it. A lot of things you have to do. There are some returns that are even filed monthly. As far as forms, there's a lot of local regulation. If you have unrelated business income, you have to file a Form 990-T. Anytime you have $1,000 or more in income, it's due by the 15th day of the fifth month after the end of your year, May 15th, if you end December 31st. That's the same time you file your 990. Now, that being said, when I started this, my goal was to get us through the four big things that can get you into trouble. And we have gone through those four things. In your handout, and it, I have some more slides that talk about some other things. The quid pro quo is talked about in there. We also have an IRS publication that talks about donations. So if you've got a situation where people are giving you money and they're getting a little something back and you're unsure, pull that publication out. 
Also in here are some things about when you have to file a 990 and when you don't. Basically, the cutoff is $25,000. Uh, if you get the instructions to the 990 or the Pub 557, those are great resources to find out about when you should do a 990 and when you should not. That being said, I think the best thing to do now is to take some of these questions. Employment tax. I've put some stuff in there about employment tax just because employment tax is an area that can get your organization into trouble really quickly. And that would be if you take someone and you don't pay your employment taxes because they're an employee, or you designate someone as an independent contractor when they're really an employee. This is a giant topic. I could talk two or three hours on how you determine if someone is an employee or an independent contractor. So be careful with that. Do you have a specific questions? Okay, let's hear it. So we have employees and independent contractors. Independent contractor is kind of like that guy who come in and paints our house. He works his own hours and does his own thing. And then we have employees and we write their annual review and they sit at a desk. We have someone coming in for eight weeks to work for our organization. And we're trying to decide they're only going to be here eight weeks. Are they going to be an independent contractor or an employee? The length of time they're here doesn't have a big impact as much as the control we have over that person. If they set their own hours, if they are just required at the end of, the, of eight weeks to produce a big paper and can work anytime they want and they bring their own equipment, like a painter who comes into our house would bring their own paintbrushes. And if the report is not successful, if they don't get paid, they have a little bit of risk involved. Those are all things that would determine if they're an independent contractor or an employee. And it can be a big test. Let's take one way in the back. Yeah, actors can frequently be independent contractors. And again, when it gets to these employee classification things, I can talk on that for a long time. There is a, a publication that deals with this. And I just don't know the number off the top of my head. But go to irs.gov and do a bit of a search. And that'll, that'll be a good place to start. A question over here. So we have a 501c3, and we've come to the end of that foundation follow-up period, and they've told us we're a private foundation. So just as a general blanket statement, we don't like this. This is bad news. <laughs> <clears throat> if we set out to be a public charity, we want to continue to be a public charity. There are a lot of benefits that go with public charity. Uh, you file a 990 as opposed to the 990 PF that private foundations follow. Private foundations have to file a tax. They have these distribution requirements. There's a lot of stuff that goes with a private foundation. So you kind of want to appeal that determination that you're a private foundation and try to get into a public charity if there's any chance that you do qualify. So this happens all the time. And you start out with one guy, and he's paying all the bills. You might need to go to that one guy and say, sorry, you don't get to pay the bills anymore. We are going out, and we're getting a lot of other funders that are going to pay. And you keep your money in the bank. And in two or three years, when we get a really broad established fundraising base, we're going to protect our public charity status. We have an organization. We want to fund it just with fees off our services. The opera does it in the symphony. Our 501c3s, and they get their funding a lot from fees people pay to buy tickets to come to the performance. A question here? No. So this is a good question. We have an employee come in the door, and we want to kind of write a contract that says you'll have to pay all your employment taxes. Well, the IRS doesn't work that way. Another one we see a lot is an employee comes in the door, and your charity looks at them and says, so tell me, what do you want to be, an independent contractor, or do you want to be an employee and get a W-2? And they say, well, I'd prefer to be, and they make the election. We don't like that one very well either. We like you to sit down and look exactly at how much control you have of that person and decide clearly if they're going to be an employee or an independent contractor. They don't have to have a business license to be an independent contractor. They just have to be really independent. An employee gets a W-2 at the end of the year, and it has that amount we withheld for federal income tax. We probably all, everybody in the room gets that. Independent contractors get a 1099 as soon as they've got $600, and they get that at the end of the year, and it's just name, address, social security number, and how much money we paid them during the year. We're an individual, and we've been doing a particular activity, and we've been uh, reporting it as ourselves, and we've been doing it ourselves, and now we're going to become a charity, and we're going to kind of migrate into the charity. 
So we have to be careful here. The IRS sometimes has concerns with this. If the charity is set up just so that we can get a really cush job to pay us a big salary. So if you had a medical practice and you're just going to try to migrate it into a 501c3 so you don't have to pay tax, that would be a problem. But if you're a counselor and you're going to now provide low, below-cost counseling to homeless people and you want to do this through a charity, you can just start doing that through the charity and go forward. And you can let your DBA expire or do whatever. You may keep it going and the full pay clients stay there. When you're making application for tax-exempt status in that giant document you sent in to us, you want to tell your whole story there of where your organization came from, how you're going to be funded, and what your budgets look like, and what you used to look like, and what you're going to look like today. And what's going to happen, we keep that on file forever. And if for some reason the IRS comes out later and says, you're the absolute worst organization, I don't know why you did it this way, we're going to revoke your exempt status, we're going to tax you, uh, we're going to just make your life miserable, you want to be able to pull that application document out and say, I told you when I applied this was what I was going to do, and you told me it was okay. That's the key thing you want to have is put us on notice. And that 1023 application is a great way to do it. Let's go right back here. Because you brought on more employees? So no, uh, we have an organization. We didn't have employees, but we're pretty successful now. We're able to hire a, a half-time executive director. That isn't something that you need to put us on notice. If you're a 501c3 organization that helps homeless kids and you decided that we're going to change now and we're going to be an SPCA and help animals, that's something that we'd want to hear about. <laughs> Shoot us a little explanation with that. So let me tell you what. It's time for me to turn the stage over to Sherry. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to step right outside this door to answer questions. And we'll talk one-on-one, -on -one and we'll let everybody get situated for the next presentation. What I need you to do, thank you. We hope you enjoy this free podcast from the Nonprofit Bootcamp series. Craigslist Foundation produces events and online tools that provide knowledge, resources, and visibility to the next generation of nonprofit leaders. To learn more about Craigslist Foundation or the Nonprofit Bootcamp conferences, visit www.craigslistfoundation.org. This series is funded by the Community Technology Foundation of California, which helps underserved communities secure social justice, access, and equality through the application of information and communications technologies. Registered members of the Conversations Network receive a wide variety of benefits. For free membership or to help support our efforts through your donations, visit conversationsnetwork.org. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Jay Yeary. Our website editor was Joel Cherney. The series producer is Liz Evans. My name is Eric Nee, and I hope you will join me next time for another program from the Nonprofit Bootcamp Series. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.